0: Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, how lovely to see so many of you here for this very special Sunday Forum. Uh, I'm Pim Baxter, I've been a lay canon here at the Cathedral since 2014 and a member of Chapter and um, I've also been Deputy Director at the National Portrait Gallery for a number of years. Um, I have to give you one health and safety notice which is in the event of a fire and I have this lovely brackets here which says and a particularly bad one hasn't happened since 1666, so we should be okay. Um, you just go out of here and exit via the Northwest Crypt door, which is just through the cafe. So, today's event um, Paula. I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Paula Gooder, who is the Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral, and she's the first layperson to hold this role. She is one of the best-known New Testament scholars and teachers of our time, and she's very much in demand. And so we feel very privileged to have her here at the cathedral, and I have to say that since she joined us in February this year, uh, she's greatly enriched all our lives. So it's been an absolute pleasure already working with her. She's the author of a number of works um, on uh, theology, and her latest book, Phoebe, A Story, which is why I hope you're all here today, is a new way of approaching her subject matter. Um, She describes it as a work of historical imagination, so not not necessarily in the genre of um, fiction. Um, But it looks at the journey of Phoebe to Rome, and uh, Paula, in in this book, offers an insight into um, St. Paul's theology, but also the role of the women in the church. So Paula's going to speak to you for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers, and we'll finish quite promptly at 2 o'clock. And um, a colleague from our shop will join us, um, because we have some copies of Paula's book here, and we will be selling them at a generous discount. Um, And Paula's very kindly said she'll sign copies for everyone. So can I ask you please to join me in welcoming Paula this morning. (laughs)
1: Thank you, and it's absolutely lovely to be here. Um, You need to know that I had a conversation with my colleagues during the week about whether anyone would come or not. (laughs) I was of the opinion that no one would come. They were of the opinion that a lot of you would come. So you can sit there in the glorious knowledge that you've proved me wrong to my colleagues. (laughs) What I want to talk to you about today is... What I learnt while I wrote the book, Phoebe, so I want to tell you why I wrote it. I want to tell you the bits that um, you find in Romans that tantalise you enough to suggest that it's worth writing a book like this. But primarily what I want to talk to you about is actually the things that I can't get my words out, that surprised me while I was writing it. When you write a book, if you've ever done it, there are things that you know that will happen. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But what always happens when you write a book is you learn a whole load more things that you never thought that you needed to learn. And so what I thought I'd tell you about were those things today. So let me start with telling you why I wrote Phoebe. Um, The idea was a very, very long time in gestation. When I was an undergraduate, I read a book that utterly gripped and captivated me. Um, Some of you will know of it. It's Gert Tyson's book, The Shadow of the Galilean. Gert Tyson's book is brilliant in all sorts of different ways. So what he was, was a historical Jesus scholar. And what he wanted to do was to introduce people to the historical Jesus. And he wrote a story about a whole load of people who had met Jesus but you never actually met Jesus yourself in the book, so you just meet the people who had met Jesus. Hence its title, The Shadow of the Galilean. So the story is about Jesus's shadow that he casts on people as he traveled around Palestine. And as I was reading that, um, I won't tell you how many years ago it was as an undergraduate. Shall we call it a couple? We're among (laughs) friends. Um, As I was reading it, I thought to myself, do you know, This would make a brilliant book on Paul. I hope somebody writes it one day and so I waited and I waited and I waited um, and nobody did write it so eventually I thought to myself I wonder if I ought to think oh no no that would be a terrible idea I thought Um, and then I kind of carried on thinking about it and eventually I said someone's got to do this and this someone is clearly me so off I started um, of writing the book. And I blatantly nicked Gert Tyson's idea because I thought it was such a good one. Um, If you've read the book, you will know that Paul does not appear at all in its pages. And I did that deliberately, mimicking Gert Tyson. Because what I was trying to do was to play with the idea of what it was like for the people who met Paul rather than actually introducing Paul himself. Because if you do that, then you've got to make certain decisions about who he was, how he reacted, what he said. If you only have other people's reactions to Paul, then you get Paul through people's lenses. And it was the lenses that I was playing with in the book. So I will talk a little bit more about that later on because I learned some really interesting things through the lenses that we began to see. The other th- reason why I wanted to write a book, so I, so I wanted to do something like this on Paul. But I also wanted to do something like this that focused on women. And um, One of the things that happens to me regularly in my life is, um, you know, you have those conversations at parties. And people like me dread those conversations at parties because they always say, oh, what do you do? Um, and then you have to work out how much of what you do you're prepared to confess in this party. Um, if, I'm, if I'm feeling very, very naughty, I say, oh, I'm a historian. And then they say, what's your period? Oh, the first century. And normally that keeps going quite nicely. But if you say, I'm a New Testament scholar, and then they say, what part of the New Testament? Um, then um, eventually what I have to do is to confess that I'm a Paul expert. Let me just pause for a moment. Um, there are a couple of seats um, in that direction, if you would like to wend your way um, into the couple of seats. So then I have to confess that I'm a Paul expert, and um, nine out of ten times when I confess that I'm a Pauline scholar, somebody will say, um, you do know Paul's not very positive about women, which I always think is a fascinating question, as though I'm meant to say, oh, is he not? Although I must admit, as I've got older, I've become naughtier about it, because um, actually, as you will discover as I go through this talk, I think Paul is very positive about women. So I've got into the habit now of saying, no, no, I really haven't noticed, Um, which then leads me on to a very long conversation with people normally, uh, which I enjoy, whether they do quite as much, I don't know. The third reason why I wanted to write this particular book, so I've told you why I wanted to write a book like this, I've told you why I wanted to do it on Paul, and I've told you why I wanted to do it on women, but why Phoebe? Why her in particular? The answer is because she's fascinated me for years. If, like me, you are a Pauline scholar and therefore you read Romans regularly, then what happens is you do the big pieces of theology in Romans 1 to 15. And then you get to the end. Um, And what most people do is, having had a really hard time reading Romans 1 to 15, they say, thank goodness for that, and shut up, Romans. The problem is, if you do that, you miss an absolute gem of a chapter, which I'm going to tell you more about this afternoon, Romans 16. In Romans 16, the final chapter of Romans, Paul introduces a whole load of characters we've never heard of before. Some we've never heard of at all, some we know from other contexts, but we didn't know they were lurking in the background of Romans. And the characters that Paul talks about are people who are in the church in Corinth, which I will explain a little about in a moment, people who are in the church in Rome, and Paul sends greetings And this is very interesting for those of us who are geeky and New Testament scholars because we're interested in those people. Because the one thing we know about Paul at this point in his ministry is that he's not been to Rome yet. So if he's sending greetings, they are people that he's met somewhere else in the Roman Empire or people that he's heard of or people that are friends of friends. And you can hear that resonating in the background of Romans 16. And so, therefore, you begin to have a window opened into a Pauline community. And in a moment, I will explain to you why that becomes particularly important in the case of Romans 16. But right at the start of Romans 16, in verses 1 to 2, we meet this remarkable person called Phoebe. And let me just tell you what we see of her from the first two verses, and then I think you'll understand why I thought a story really had to be written about her. So Paul says to us in Romans 16, verses 1 to 2, I commend to you Phoebe, is where he starts out. So the really interesting thing about that word commend, wonder, I'm going to pick through the, um, the two verses very um, in detail so you get a sense of what's going on. So the first thing is that he commends Phoebe to them. Now the thing you need to know about that particular Greek word commend is that it was widely used in the Greco-Roman world when you sent a letter. And what would happen would be that you would say to the people that you would send the letter to the bearer of this letter is very significant. In fact they are so significant you should treat them as though they were me. So that word commend is actually a much bigger word he's not just going have you ever met phoebe oh i don't think you have this is phoebe that's not what he's saying what he's saying is here is somebody that i commend to you in such a way that you are to treat her as though she were me and when you stop and think about that That becomes hugely significant when we're thinking about this character, Phoebe. This is someone that Paul thinks is important and is significant. Now, also just use your imagination for a moment. Imagine that a person has come bearing a letter like Romans. And then also imagine that, I know, very unlikely scenario, that they hear the letter of the Romans read out and they didn't understand absolutely all of it. I know it's hard for you to get your head around these (laughs) days, but just imagine that the first hearers of Romans didn't understand absolutely every sentence. Now, who would they ask to explain it to them? They'd ask the person who brought the letter, who had just been commended to them by Paul um, as being the person they were to treat as though she were he. She were him, especially if they knew that Paul wrote the letter back in her home time in Corinth. He probably had told her about it, so she'd probably know some of the answers. So, a large number of Roman scholars, and I'm certainly one of them, would argue that Phoebe, therefore, is the first ever exegete of Romans, because they'd have asked her what it meant, and she'd have told them what it meant, and so she would have unpacked the letter of Romans to them. Now, if you know anything about Pauline scholarship, you will know that there are not a lot of female Pauline scholars around. It's one of those very heavily male-dominated disciplines. It's just the way things fall out in certain areas. And so, therefore, as one of the few female Pauline scholars who is passionate about Paul it gives me an enormous sense of satisfaction to think that I'm in apostolic succession from Phoebe. (laughs) She's more for me than just a member of the Pauline community. She is the person who is my ultimate role model from which all of this comes. So therefore, you can see why she's so important for me personally. Second thing we know about Phoebe that Paul tells us is that she is a deacon of the church in Cancrii. Um, In case you don't know Kencriai, let me explain that first and then I'll explain the deacon bit. So, Kencriai is one of the harbour ports of Corinth um, and therefore was a very, very significant town. If you lived in the Greco-Roman world and you wanted to travel from east to west or from west to east, hard as it is to imagine these days, the best way to do it was to travel to one of the harbour ports, depending on which way you were going. You would bring your boat to the harbour port You would lift your boat out of the water and put it on the diolkos, which was a short road, that you would put um, kind of wooden trunks underneath it and you would trundle your boat um, from one harbour port to the other harbour port and pop your boat in the water on the other side and then off you would go again. Why, you may be thinking, might you do that? Well, the answer is because southern Greece, still today is known for its treacherous currents and winds. So actually, it is still actually easier and more straightforward to go through current than it is to sail around the bottom of Greece. They've now made it far more easy and that they've cut a canal um, where the Diorkos, well, next to the Diorkos, so you don't have to take your boat out of the water anymore. But nevertheless, um, that's what would have happened. Just a little footnote, because I think it's interesting. Um, You did know that, even though you may not think you knew that, because there is an occasion in the New Testament where they do sail around the southern part of Greece in order to get to Rome. Um, and they do it in Acts, if you remember, with Paul in the ship. And what happened? They got shipwrecked because the tides and the, and the winds are so treacherous around the southern part of Greece. So why did they not take their boat to the Diolcos De through Corinth? Um, you probably can work it out, can't you? Prison ship? Um, Taking a whole ship of prisoners um, on the way to Rome, what's the last thing you want to do? Take them off the boat at Corinth while you trundle your boat down the road and put it down on the other side? It would be a really terrible idea, which is why they didn't do it, which is why they were shipwrecked, which you knew already. So, you get that kind of sense of why this is kind of an important bit of geographical understanding. So, Cancrii, like its sister port, Lycaon, um, were very, very significant ports in Rome, hugely important. And we are told that Phoebe was a deacon of Cancrii. Now, if only Paul had told us what he meant. There is no doubt from the Greek that it was a title, that it was used um, of people who were in positions in churches, There's no doubt that the people in Cancrii would have said, yes, Phoebe was a deacon of Cancrii. There's no doubt that the Romans went, ah, a deacon of the church in Cancrii, excellent. Paul knew what it meant, Phoebe knew what it meant, the Corinthians knew what it meant, the Romans knew what it meant, and so we don't. Because Paul didn't explain it. If only he could just have glossed and said, and therefore it means that she did, Um, it would have saved me writing... um, probably about seven different papers on the nature of the diaconate in the early New Testament period. Um, I have, as you will gather, lots of ideas about what it means, but we don't know for certain precisely what it means. But it means something, and the something is the really important thing. She had a role in a church that was recognized across the Pauline communities, to the extent that Paul could say, she's a deacon. The Romans went, of course she is, therefore there is something very significant there thing we know about Phoebe is that Paul describes her and I hear I need to give you the actual Greek word because it's very contested. He describes her as a prostatus, um, and he says she's a prostatus of many and also of me. Now if you know your English translations you will know that this is most often translated as helper or benefactor and um, I will have at this point to refrain from ranting too much about this Um, because actually um, if this word is used of a man um, in parts outside of the New Testament, you would normally expect to translate it as patron or leader. So interestingly, the word literally means someone who stands in front of. Um, and therefore, most often, you will find the word prostatis used of people who are leading communities. Interestingly, um, it is used um, particularly in the diaspora, which is where Jews live outside of Jerusalem and Palestine. Um, it is used of the leaders of synagogues. A leader of synagogue would have been called a prostatus. So, you can imagine how much it rankles every time I read Romans 16 verse 1-2 to and have to read out that Phoebe was a helper of many. Um, You can almost hear me grumbling in the background while it happens. Um, I think it is highly unlikely that that is what is meant by the word in this particular context. It is clear that she was influential, that she led a community, and also the implication of the word is that she was wealthy and that's a very important implication. If she was a patron, then she would have had clients, she would have commissioned people to do jobs for her, she would have had an influential role in society. So, she's commended the first exegete of Romans, she brought the letter from Corinth to Rome, she's a deacon of the church in Cancrii, she's a patron or a leader, let's call her a leader for the sake of argument, Two other things before I tell you what I learnt as I was writing. The bit that really made me go, okay, why I have to write this book now, is when I was reading an article about um, the name Phoebe and its use in the Greco-Roman world. And the writer of the article argued that um, the name Phoebe was most often used of slaves in the Greco-Roman world. And there was lots of evidence, and it seemed quite clear that this was the case. It was a slave name. Let me just remind you deacon of a church, wealthy patron, leader of a community, slave name. Don't you think that begs for a story to be told about this person? It's almost as though you could feel um, kind of Phoebe in the background going, Tell my story, tell my story, which is eventually um, why I kind of got round to writing it. Um, final piece of information about Phoebe is that in Romans 15, It is very clear that Paul is writing Romans for a very particular purpose. And what's quite interesting is we often overlook the purpose, because frankly by the time we've got to Romans 15 our head is so full with Paul's arguments that we omit to notice the really important thing that he says, which is that he believes that he has proclaimed the gospel to the best of his capacity in the East. He says that, I am unable to do it any further, and he is feeling called onwards to the west. And in particular, he's called onwards to Spain. So although he has been in technically the west, which is he's been into Greece, um, he hasn't gone further west than that. And he feels that God is now calling him to go further with the gospel. If you think about what Romans is about, it's really about the gospel. It's about Paul telling you what he thinks the gospel is. And then he gets, in Romans 15, to the point of saying, and I want to proclaim this in Spain. So, it's almost as though he's getting the Romans on side to say, the Spanish mission is really important. I've explained to you what the gospel is. I've got to take that to Spain, haven't I? So, in a way, it is one of the earliest of the fundraising letters because what Paul is doing is saying, can you see why it's so important I take the gospel to Spain? Um, Will you stump up some cash to help me do it? And there seems to be a really good argument that Phoebe has been sent in advance of Paul to get the Spanish mission ready. She's to find the money, to work out the logistics, to find the people who are going to do it, and onwards they would then go to Spain. There was, of course, a slight glitch in the plan, however. What seems clear from the letter of Romans is that Paul sent Phoebe onwards with the letter to get the Spanish mission set up. He's just going to pop to Jerusalem to drop off the collection. Now, just in case um, you aren't clear what the collection is, um, as you read through the Pauline epistles, you will know that he, as he goes round, particularly Greece, but also parts of Asia Minor. He encourages them to lay money aside for the church in Jerusalem that is going through a famine. So, what he did is he then collected the money that they'd laid aside and was just popping to Jerusalem to pay them the money. Then he was going onwards to Rome and off they would go to Spain. You will know your acts, I'm sure, and the popping didn't quite happen as Paul had anticipated. Um, And, in fact, what did happen is that he was arrested, imprisoned, and he eventually did get to Rome, but not quite as he'd intended and not in the timescale that he's intended. But all of that behind the letter seemed to me to be so suggestive of interesting thoughts, of things that you could think, of ways that you could explore, that I had a go of writing the story that I wrote, which was about Phoebe. So, what did I learn while I wrote? The first and most important thing that I learned is that imagination is a vital tool in biblical interpretation. If you read the notes to my book, you will notice that I spend a page or so apologizing for imagining stuff, because I knew that people would shout at me, telling me that it actually wasn't the way that you do your biblical interpretation. If I wrote that chapter now, I would stop apologizing because now I'm absolutely convinced that imagination is a vital tool in the toolkit. Let me be clear, it's not the only tool in the toolkit. It goes in alongside all the other tools in the toolkit, but we need it in order to be able to understand what's really going on in the Bible. And for some reason in Christian tradition, we've become so hesitant about the tool of imagination that we've stopped using it and I think our interpretation has become impoverished as a result. Let me just tell you a few things about why I think it's so important. Um, in fact, let me tell you a story. Um, when uh, Shortly after the book um, came out, somebody came up to me, and you always can see... You know when a person's got that glint in their eye and you know you're going to be in trouble? And he had his arms folded, and he said, to Anne kind of like this, and said, young lady... <laughs> I must admit, I'm now of an age where actually that distracted me for a moment to go, oh, thank you very much. Um, Young lady, how would you defend yourself against the criticism that you've just made it all up? Um, I did try. Of course, it didn't have any impact at all. But let me try again with you. A few ways in which I would defend myself against the allegation. The first is that we do it already all the time. The key thing, however, is that we've just forgotten that we have. I submit as my case for the defense, ladies and gentlemen, the nativity story. Um, I would argue that if you have been to a nativity play, um, which you probably have, 80% of the nativity play is an act of pure imagination. Um, it's a great, don't get me wrong, I think it's a fabulous act of pure imagination. Frankly, if you'd simply told the nativity story exactly as Matthew or Luke told it, you would have a really unexciting 90 seconds of nativity play. And then everyone would go, with a, in, involving about four children, um, and then you'd all go home and be rather disappointed. There's a reason why we use imagination for the nativity play, because it brings it off the page. What is wrong with the nativity play is not that we use our imagination, but that we've forgotten that we use our imagination. So when I break the bad news to people that there wasn't an innkeeper, in fact there might not have been an inn, um, people get kind of, "What, what are you saying about my nativity play? Um, But actually, um, it's one of those things where I want to say it's a really good thing that we use our imagination. It's essentially gets us into the heart of what's going on in the story. But actually, it's only good if you remember it's an act of imagination, not um, assume that it's there in the text. My next case for the defense would be Jewish interpretation, and and one of the things that is one of my expertises is the way in which we have a look at Jewish interpretation and how that helps us understand what's going on in the New Testament. And for me, one of the beautiful strands of Jewish interpretation is the way they use imagination to help you understand what's going on in the text. One of my favorite ones is the story of Joseph and Asenath, which comes from the second century. And there's a lovely bit, so this is the story about Joseph from Genesis, Um, and in the story about Joseph from Genesis, there's a little line that says, and Joseph married the daughter of a pharaoh, which if you will know anything about Jewish um, um, religion, you will know should not have happened. So the story of Joseph and Asenath is the story of how it was all right, really. And it's a fascinating, it's a glorious story, if you like um, kind of overblown, um, romantic, um, slightly fantastical stories, which I do. Um, And the story is of um, the daughter of Pharaoh, who meets an angel before she ever met Joseph. And And the angel converts her to Judaism. So by the time she met Joseph, she was already Jewish. So it was fine when they got married because they he, he wasn't marrying out of Judaism. The end It's a lot longer than that. Um, but you get the idea that actually what Jewish interpretation does is it plays in very close detail with what is there in the text. And for me, there's something really, really important about it because there's a good chance you've never noticed that Joseph married the daughter of a pharaoh because you just slip over it and you don't notice it. What imagination makes you do is read the text even more carefully than you would have done if you weren't using your imagination. And so, actually, it demands a very, very close reading of the text. And that is your first step into a very good tool of biblical interpretation. What is actually there, rather than what you imagine to be there, begins to set you on the road to good biblical interpretation. We also do it, incidentally, in other parts of the Bible. I'm a big fan of Ignatian spirituality. And Ignatian spirituality is one of those areas which encourages you to imagine yourself into the stories of the Gospels, to see yourself with Jesus, to imagine what it was felt like to be there. Um, one of my frustrations is no one's ever tried to do that with Paul. And in a way, what I was trying to do with Phoebe was to do a kind of Ignatian-type spirituality exercise on Paul. What did it feel like to listen to Paul? What was it like to be part of a Pauline community? And out of that, you begin to discover things that you could never have thought before. And so what you get when you use imagination um, in exploring the text is you use another part of yourself, and the other part of yourself becomes a really important part. It is the, um, the visionary part, the mystical part, the emotional part. And in understanding what it felt like to hear Romans being read, you then begin to understand Romans in a completely different way. So let me just give you one little example of that, which for me, I think, was um, really, really interesting. Um, When you begin to understand what adoption and slavery were like in the Roman Empire, then all of a sudden Romans 8, one of Paul's most important chapters, gets new life, you begin to kind of see it jumping off the page. Let me tell you a couple of things that you may not know. In the Roman Empire, um, adoption was common, but it was a very different practice to adoption today. Um, Today, when we adopt, we largely adopt infants. It would be expected that you would adopt infants. The Romans were the opposite. The Romans almost always adopted adults rather than infants. And the reason why they did that was because infant mortality was so high that actually if you were adopting someone and what you were doing was adopting them in order to inherit your inheritance, you wanted them to be alive. So, therefore, what you would do is you would wait till um, a young man grew up, and I'm afraid it was normally a young man, grew up and demonstrated themselves to be worthy of your inheritance, and then you'd go, I'll adopt you and you can be my son. And what you may not know is um, more than one of the Roman emperors in the first century were adopted. And they were adopted as adults. And they did it precisely for that reason. um, Is that they had a look around and they saw somebody that they thought would be a good successor as an emperor. And they adopted them. The slight bizarre conundrum is one of those who was adopted was Nero. And you think, (laughs) I wonder what you were thinking. Or maybe they didn't notice. But, you know, it's... a It is one of those kind of intriguing features um, of the Roman world. But the other thing, which is equally fascinating, is that in Rome, slaves could be freed. In fact, not only could they be freed, there was a kind of vague expectation that they would be freed. In fact, so much so was the expectation that they would be freed that the Emperor Augustus was forced um, to issue a decree not the kind that you're used to, but a decree that said, um, please will you not free more than 100 slaves in any one will because you are ruining the slave economy. And so basically what often would happen is that a wealthy landowner would die, free all their slaves. And if they were really wealthy, it would be hundreds and hundreds of slaves. Um, And then the slave economy tanked um, and everyone got very anxious. So Augustus um, decreed that that shouldn't happen. But that gets you the idea that actually slaves could be freed. And what is more, slaves could be freed and adopted. That's the really intriguing bit. So, sometimes um, we find evidence that a slave was freed in the will of their master and at the same time inherited the master's wealth. When you know that and you read Romans 8, which is all about adoption and not having a spirit um, of slavery and then our inheritance, all of a sudden you go, oh, wow, that's so interesting. Well, I do, anyway. Um, and what you realise is that in knowing some of that imaginative background, Romans comes to life. All of a sudden, it's not just a kind of really dense, argued book. You realise that Paul is saying, and you who are slaves, now think about what this means for you and your new identity in Christ. You who are women think about what this means for you and your new identity in Christ. And on he goes. You get some really, really fascinating insights. What else did I learn? Um, I also learned that the shadow of a person is as important as the person themselves. Um, Somebody once said to me when I was young and innocent and naive, and I disagreed with them entirely, and now I realize I was wrong. But they said to me, the one thing you can't control in life is what other people think about you. And as a young woman who is brought up to know that if you're a very good girl, people will think nice things about you, I disagreed. I'm now no longer a young woman, and now I know they were absolutely right. Um, that There is actually nothing you can do to control what people think about you. And what I was playing with in this book is the importance of recognizing that who a person is, is actually nothing to do with what everyone else thinks about them. And it's also all to do with what everyone else thinks about them, but with everyone else thinks about them, not just one group or another group or another group. So what I was trying to play with is who is this Paul? Who was Paul to Jewish Christians? Who was Paul to Gentile Christians? Who was Paul to women, to men, to people who'd been slaves, to wealthy landowners? You get what I was trying to do. I was trying to say, well, who is this person? And interestingly, various people have written to me afterwards and said, I don't think Paul was like that. And the trouble is when um, people um, contact you, normally you can't write back so you can't say that wasn't the point I was making. Um, But it wasn't the point I was making. I wasn't saying Paul was like that. I was saying people experience Paul to be like that. And that's a different thing. Who Paul actually was, we still don't know. Because who Paul actually was, we still only have the shadows of Paul. So what we have to try and do is work from the shadows of Paul to work out who Paul really was. Um Another thing that I learned, um which is um, for me really si- significant, um is about women in Paul, which you will be expecting me to talk about. Um, as I said at the start, I have never thought that Paul thinks about women, what I'm told that Paul thinks about women. But having read, and sorry, having read, yeah, I have read Phoebe, actually, uh, more times than anyone else in the room, but I've also written it. Um, Having written Phoebe, I am now absolutely passionate that the way in which we set up our debates about women and the Pauline communities is wrong. And it has been wrong um, for a very, very long time. And the reason why I think it's wrong is that we begin from an assumption that women were not in any position of leadership in the Pauline communities. And we use as support of our assumption the three key passages, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, that of course supports the fact that Paul did not think women should have leadership positions in the early church. Um, And what I became really clear to me as I was writing this is if you start with the assumption that women aren't in leadership, then it's unsurprising that you get to an end position that says, and therefore women shouldn't be. But if you start in a different place, then all the texts start to look different. And one of the really striking things is starting with the actual women of the poor line communities and not the notional women of the poor line communities. What I mean by that is the real women who lived in poor line communities and ministered and worked and whom Paul knew, rather than The unnamed ones that are kind of hovering behind 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. They are the notional women because Paul doesn't give them a name. He doesn't actually tell us who they are. And when you pay close attention to the actual women, you discover something really interesting. Now, I can't tell you, and this is insignificant, this is significant in itself. I cannot tell you about all the women in the Pauline communities now because I haven't got time. Just hear me say that. I haven't got time to tell you about them all. Let me just tell you about the women in Romans 16, because the women in Romans 16 prove my point beautifully. In Romans 16, Paul names 19 men and 10 women. Um, There are some you will have heard of, some you won't have heard of. But what is really interesting is of the 19 men mentioned in Romans 16, only three of those are described by Paul in Romans 16 as being in service of the Lord. The others he just kind of says hi to on the way through. Um, And of those three that are in the service of the Lord, um, two, Aquila and Andronicus are mentioned alongside women. Aquila with Priscilla, Um, Andronicus with junior. So only one man is mentioned in Romans 16 in service of the Lord on his own. In contrast, of the 10 women mentioned in Romans 16, seven women are mentioned as being in the service of the Lord. So let me just run through them very quickly for you to give you a sense. You've got Phoebe, don't need to tell you about her, we've done her already. Prisca, married to Aquila, who we know, um, there were churches that met in their house. And the thing that's really striking to notice about Prisca and Aquila is um, 90% of the time, 85% of the time, that they're mentioned, Prisca is always mentioned first, Aquila is mentioned second. And that is unusual. It's unusual today. It was totally unusual in the first century. And it implies that when Paul thinks of Prisca and Aquila, Prisca comes first. She just kind of rises in his mind first. There's lots of debate about why that is. We can have a conversation if you're interested. But clearly, she's the one that Paul thinks about when they're mentioned. We've got Mary mentioned, who worked very hard among you. We've got Junior, in association with Andronicus, who is a relative of Paul, who was in prison with him, and prominent among the apostles. Now, if you know anything about debates around women in the Pauline communities, you will know that there's a lot of debate about whether she was a he, and whether prominent meant prominent, and whether all of those things happen. Um, I would say, yes, it does, but actually, let's factor Junior out. If you want to have an argument about it, we'll talk about the other six who are very clear. Um, And Junior, I think, was prominent among the apostles, so a significant apostle, but let's kind of leave her on one side in our arguments. Then we've got three people. Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, who were workers with Paul and the Lord. So there you have seven women in Romans 16, mentioned as working for the gospel, serving the Lord in positions of leadership, um, and people who had um, um, churches meeting in their house. I would submit to you that that is very, very strong evidence that not only were women in significant positions in the Pauline communities, Paul had no problem with them at all. He did not feel the need to put in brackets anywhere, and I wish they'd shut up, or I wish they'd stop doing that. And I do wish Junior would stop being so prominent among the apostles. You know, those kinds of things. He doesn't mention it at all, which suggests that actually it was normal and it was natural. If it was normal and natural in the early Pauline communities, then we must be reading the other texts wrong. Um, And I would say if you start reading the other texts in a different way, then different things happen, um, and for me that's really um, significant. I need to wrap up, but let me end by the fourth thing that I learned. And the fourth thing I think is possibly, personally for me, the most important thing of all is what I was trying to do in writing the book Phoebe was to see if I could hear the whispers of a first-century woman's voice. Could I hear what it might sound like? Um, And despite the fact that everyone, well not everyone, but a lot of people think I've just made a lot of this stuff up, actually, I haven't. A lot of what is there in the book, I've got from what we know about life in Rome, from archaeological evidence, from sociological evidence for the Greco-Roman world, and from Romans. So therefore, what I was listening for were those whispers over the centuries, Um, and I I cannot tell you that I've got it right, but I can tell you that I heard something which was striking, and as I heard the whisper of that voice of a first century woman, um, what I discovered to my great surprise was that I found my voice, and that for me, was a really kind of powerful and an emotional thing. Um, when you are um, somebody who's trying to do something different in a discipline, it's really hard to find your voice. It's really hard to be confident that you can speak in, a different, in the way that you want to speak. Um, what I discovered is that by listening really carefully to Phoebe's voice, actually, I began to hear, hear mine. And that's why this book has been so important for me. Thank you. <clears throat>
0: allow time for questions. Um, so, if, if um, I can have questions from the audience, if you can be quite precise, and I will actually
1: repeat it back, just um, so that... It's, just, um, it's because they, this is being filmed, and um, they, they won't be able to hear you asking the question, but they will be able to hear him repeating the question. So, it's for the sake of the people watching the film. Oh,
0: I have first question. Excellent.
1: Have, have you sold the film
0: rights? <laughs> the question
1: is, have you sold the film rights? No, I really haven't. Um, and that's because it's not a novel. Um, it's, um, it's a stru- it, and that kind of allows me to tell you a little bit about what it is and what it isn't. Um, it, this is not a novel, and it's not a novel because I wrote it in a completely different way than you would write a good novel. I'm a novel addict and I adore novels, which is why I want to go, this really isn't one. So what I wrote before I started writing this was a list of the Pauline theological points I wanted to communicate by writing the story. And as I went through it, I ticked them off. Um, And then when I realised I'd missed something, I went back and shoehorned them back into the story, which is not how you write a good novel. Um, And that is why this is not a novel. Um, But it... For those of you who don't know the book what i did for the t- first two-thirds of the book is i wrote a story and then the second the last third of the book um was really written for me but i'm delighted to know i'm not the only person who likes this kind of thing when i read historical novels one of the things that annoys me is how do, you, do i know that that's true or have you made it up what evidence is there for this so the last third of the book is me For my satisfaction saying well we know this we don't know that there's an argument about this that's what's going on in the archaeology and if you're geeky like me um it's quite satisfying
0: so the question is when a slave was adopted did they automatically become a roman citizen Um,
1: no not automatically it was often the case but not exclusively the case um, and it also depended on where you lived in the Roman world. Um, it was much more likely that you would be made a Roman citizen if you lived in Rome or Italy than in any other part of the Roman Empire. Which is, incidentally, one of the things that intrigues scholars about Paul. Because Paul, in Acts, is said to be a Roman citizen, but he comes from Tarsus, in Asia Minor. Um, and no one can quite work out how that would be the case. Um, so you either have got to say, Acts made it up, or you've got to say, well, clearly it was the case and we just don't know why. I'd normally go with the second rather than the first. But, but it is there's a big discussion about the nature of Roman citizenship. I think Patrick. Sorry.
0: Sorry, it's a little technical question. When you read the book, should you read chapter one and then the notes on chapter or should you read the whole story and then go back over it? So the question is, when you read the book, do you read chapter one and then the notes on chapter one, or do you read the whole story and then go back to the notes?
1: You should do whatever you like. <laughs> And I know, there's, I, I, I've had lots of conversations with lots of different people who've done it differently. So some people have read the story and then they've read the notes and that's worked really well for them. Um, there's a lovely uh, retired clergyman in our congregation who said, oh, I couldn't be doing with a story after the first chapter, so I read the notes first. Um, and then I read the story afterwards and that made a lot more sense. Um, there are some people who read the story and then they read the story with the notes. Um, do whatever you find works best for you.
0: View of Paul's thinking on it. And I just add that if you look around the world at culture, uh, I found it very inspirational to see things like these iron portraits of it, which seems to suggest entirely different. Right, have a go <laughs> at. A you could, you <laughs> could. Why don't you repeat the short version? The short version is. Uh, well, gosh, I've got so bad. Well, let me, shall I do it? Yeah. Um,
1: and so so how, how have we got with um, such a view of Paul of women in Paul? Um, have we got here and not where we might have got otherwise? Um, those questions are always fascinating about how an idea emerges um, and how it shifts and changes. Um, Almost certainly what happened, um, as always happens, is that um, what Paul was saying became embedded in the culture in which it was found. Um, And as that culture um, went off in a certain direction, so what he was saying was heard through the cultural lens of that particular culture. It is also, kind of a little note to ourselves, um, that, that that is also true of us. So we hear Paul through our cultural lens and one of the things I would say is that's absolutely fine but we just again need to be aware that it's happening. So the cultural lens that I think um, began to shift people's um, attitude towards women and their reading of the Pauline um, texts is I think happened really very early on, um, late 1st century, early 2nd century. And for me, one of the big things that happened that began to shift things around was that when Christianity was in its earliest phase, such as we find um, in the um, uh, text of Romans, um, people would have met in houses privately, um, either in villas or in tenements, or they'd have met in workshops or in Roman baths or somewhere like that, but it had been largely a private setting. And in the Roman world... There were all sorts of different ways in which women could have positions, but by and large, women were influential in the private sphere and not in the public sphere. It was how they kind of set things up culturally. So the great irony is that as Christianity became successful, then it moved from being something that took place in the private sphere into something that took place in the public sphere. And because in Rome, honor and shame was a really important strand that was kind of very, very significant in people's thinking, um, this new religion needed to demonstrate that it was in the honor-shame code. So therefore, it was clearly honorific and not shameful. And one of the things that it could do in that context is, in being public, follow the cultural mores of the Roman world in the public world. So consequently, the, ro- the role that women used to have began to fade away as it stopped being quite so much in the private sphere. And then as, as always happens, as you begin to see men um, solely in positions of leadership, then you go, well, that's always been the case, hasn't it? Um, and then you get into um, kind of down the road. And that's, that's what I think began to happen, is that it began to be seen through um, a cultural lens. I also just need to say back to myself: yes, of course, but you're seeing it through a cultural lens today, which is different from as has been for the last 2,000 years. And I would say, absolutely, um, I'd still argue that's a good case for it. Uh, because fee is amended to assume literate, What was level, What were levels of literacy like among women at the end, <coughs> in imperial empire?
0: So, the question is, if Phoebe was commended, she was presumably literate, so, and what was the level of literacy at that time? Um, And who should have been Yes,
1: yes. Um, The answer is, um, it all depends who you were and where you lived and how much money you had, um, pretty much as now. Um, So, there were um, women, we do have extensive evidence of women who were highly trained and literate. We also have extensive evidence evidence of women who were not trained at all and illiterate Um, and therefore one of the interesting um, features I think is simply the recognition that you can't, what you, you can say of one person you cannot say of everybody. But as you say, um, what we therefore need to do is go through the pages of the New Testament and see who we see in the pages of the New Testament who are literate, male and female. And you get some really interesting insights into literacy and who might have been and who might not have been. So you have um, people who would have been the readers of letters who would have been literate. Um, you would have had Paul, who was clearly literate. Um, Phoebe appears to have been. Was Priscilla. Possibly, possibly not. There's no evidence that there was. So you have to kind of pick them off one by one and say, do we think there's evidence of this? In terms of who thought it was worth teaching a girl to read, um, I think one of the interesting things is, um, as happened all the way through Christian history, and you can give some excellent examples like Cranmer, of people who had particularly close relationships with young girls, young um, girls. Um, who taught, was it Cranmer? I think it was one of them, very famously taught their daughter. I think it was Cranmer. I may be wrong. But one of the kind of historical kind of key reformation. Thomas More, thank you. I knew it was right. As I was saying it, It was. I knew it wasn't Cranmer. Yes, it was Thomas More. Um, And so you get these kind of, these people who actually think, yeah, no, it really is worth it. And therefore I think we will say that mostly probably women were not literate, but um, there is evidence that there were some who were. Thank you.
0: Uh, the lady at the back there. Um,
1: so in, in 2019, we talked about women in leadership. Mm-hmm. It's often linked on a pipeline problem or care, caregiving responsibilities mm-hmm. and, in, in general industry. But if I'm hearing correctly, it seems like the, the problem with, it, with the church or women in leadership is just you know, prevailing, persistent view of women as not, I don't want to say worthy,
0: but not right. For the leadership position, is is that the, the greatest challenge for women in leadership in the church, or is it just that we're talking about it today because we have this focus on cultural uh, relationship? Okay, so the question is that um, in in two thousand nineteen, the problems for women in leadership are quite often um, refer back to kind of caring issues and things like that. that. But um, so, but was was the fact that um, women weren't considered to be worthy of leadership, um, what was it you said? that? Is that what's holding back women ascending in the church? Is that also what's holding back women ascending in the church?
1: When you're asked to give a reason for anything, um, as soon as you start doing it, you don't give a full picture. Um, And I think I would want to say that the reason why we are where we are today is for a whole bunch of reasons and and we could talk for hours about what those reasons are. There's stuff to do with culture, there's stuff to do with history, there's stuff to do with how texts have been interpreted for very many years, there's stuff to do with the fact that we like things how they are and we don't like them to change, thank you very much. You know there's a whole load of of different um, reasons about that and I think I would say um, that what we need to do is, when we're looking for that question of reasons, we need to try and get as many of them on the table as possible, rather than just say, it's for that reason or it's for that reason. Let's look at them all um, and have a look at how much we feel they hold water. Um, and I think once you get kind of a full range of reasons on the table, then the picture starts to change. So I think I would say it isn't just one, it's a range of reasons. Um, but we should not underestimate... Um, the power of human beings to like things like they've always been. Um, that's one of the primary things that stops us changing, um, is that just makes us slightly uncomfortable um, to do something different. Um, and, and therefore, how we, how we build change in the church is possibly one of the most important questions we need to ask across all sorts of levels.
0: So I think we've probably got time for two more. So there's a lady here.
1: Thanks to all of us fascinating talk. My question is I went to a number a series of discussions on who Paul is, and one of the dominant statements was that Paul was anti women. And now, listening to you, it shows that that's quite the opposite. My question to you now is how would I, if somebody brought that question of King I Nigeria,
0: how would I defend that and <laughs> say, so the question is, having listened to Paula today, the, the sort of perception that Paul's anti-women has been kind of reversed, so how would you, you kind of defend that now mm. if you were, if you were, you know, to...
1: um, Two things I would say. One thing is I would want to know who the person was you were talking to. Um, One of the things that I decided about 10 years ago is that I would give up trying to persuade somebody who knew they were right in the other direction um, of my view. Um, because they would have no hope of persuading me of their view, so why, you know, that it's not that I w- wouldn't talk to them, but it actually, in a way, it feels a little bit impolite to try and persuade them to change their mind. Um, if they think that, they're very welcome to think that, and I'm very welcome to disagree with them. You know, I think I would leave it like that. But if you wanted to present the view, the way that I would say is pretty much what I said in my third point about what I'd learned, um, which is that... Um, The argument from the actual women who lived in the Pauline communities and what we can know about them is so very, very interesting that you at least have to have a look at it in the light of the texts that are normally cited. So if you want to say that there were no women leaders in the Pauline communities, you have to explain um, who Junior was, who Phoebe was, who Prisca was, um, and why you are, and with each of them. And there will be people who will tell you for each of them why they think they weren't in fact a leader. Um, I would disagree with them. It'll surprise you to know. Um, But nevertheless, I think it's um, important just to go through the very different women that you find. And I only told you about Romans 16. There are so many others as well. Um, And basically, I would just go through all of them and go, okay, so Nympha, Euodia, Syntyche. Let's talk about them all. Um, I think it's a really strong case. And for me, one of the really important things, it's a really strong case, and we don't make it often enough. And therefore I would encourage you to join me in making it. So I
0: saw one did I see one? Yes, just very as long as it's a quick one, the gentleman over there. yes, you. Yeah. Could you speak a little more about what sort of sources you were
1: able to use to get to the mind of the person tree? Mm, absolutely. Um, so while there isn't a lot written sociologically about the New Testament, there's vast amounts written um, in the Roman world. So basically I went into um, all sorts of sociological and psychological surveys that were done of um, the Roman context in, in Rome from, from the classical studies. And um, once you start doing that, there are can, huge numbers of sources and you get some utterly fascinating evidence about the role of women generally in Rome. And it's a very similar picture, actually, to what happens in the New Testament. Because, you know, again, you'll start by saying, well, women didn't really have any role particularly, except for that woman who was a leader of a synagogue and that woman who apparently was a very significant patron. There's a woman I was reading about actually only earlier because I was just kind of checking some sources, who was a patron who funded the building of one of the most important gymnasiums in Rome. You know, it's kind of those kind of people that make you go, well, this is the case that it is, except for all these people that did it differently. Um, And I think, for me, one of the really important things is reading through the cracks. So you make a statement and then you go, well, OK, let's have a look at some of the evidence that kind of undermines that statement. And once you start looking, um, particularly in the case of women, you find huge numbers of evidence that actually we haven't quite got the picture right.
0: I'm going to draw it to a close. I'm sorry. I know we could go on asking lots of questions. Um, I do. I do urge you to read Phoebe. It's. um, I know it's not a novel, but the the character of Phoebe um, Paula has is absolutely sort of lives there for you in the book. But there are a lot of other amazing characters in the book as well. And I think there's also there's a wonderful you know this the feelings that come through it like when people are when people come together and, and are able to talk freely and the sort of feeling of love and mutual support is just tremendous in the book so Paula thank you for sharing with us how Phoebe came about it's really really interesting and um, uh, thank you for, for giving us the time this morning um, should we just give Paula <laughs>